Let's open up again to the book of Romans in chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And we're coming back to the subject of stumbling blocks today. Uh, Romans 14 verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The idea is that I can speak or act in such a way that I cause you to fall down, to stumble. I can speak or act in, in a way that strongly tempts you to sin against God. The call of this chapter is for us to care for each other by not causing each other to fall. By not being a means of temptation to sin in each other's lives. But I need to be clear about something from the outset. Not all stumbling blocks are bad. There is one stumbling block that you must never set aside and never compromise under any circumstance whatsoever. Because you see, our word stumbling block in verse 13 is the same word used of Jesus Christ when the apostles translate the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah spoke a word from God, a word declaring that God would lay a stone in Zion among his people and that his own people would stumble over that stone to their own destruction. And Jesus made it clear in Matthew 21, he is that stone of stumbling. Jesus Christ is the stumbling block. Look back at the end of Romans 9, just a couple pages back, at the end of Romans 9, where Paul was explaining yet again that salvation is not earned through law-keeping, but that salvation is received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet Paul saw that the majority of his fellow Jews, Paul's kinsmen, were not accepting this. And look at what Paul says, Romans 9 verse 32. Romans 9 verse 32. They did not pursue it, that is salvation, by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Mount Hermon, Jesus himself, is a stone that causes people to stumble. When people hear the message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners, some people thankfully respond by humbling themselves, believing on Jesus, loving Jesus. But there are others who respond to that same message with pride and unbelief, with scoffing. 
They hear the message of Jesus as an affront to themselves. Are you telling me that I'm not good enough? They hear the message of Jesus as an accusation that they are sinners and they don't want to be known as a sinner. They hear the message of Jesus teaching them that their only hope lies outside of themselves and a guy from Nazareth. It just sounds so ridiculous to them and they don't want to hear that they need a rescuer, that they need a savior. They don't want to be saved by someone else. They want to be saved by themselves and they stumble. Dear friends, we must never think that because people stumble over the message of Jesus that we should therefore compromise that message. We must never preach a half-truth about Jesus. We must never preach a gospel where we leave out the parts that are difficult to swallow. We must preach Jesus as he really is in all his wondrous glory. We must preach the whole gospel because only the whole gospel saves. And it isn't just unbelievers who need to hear the gospel. We who are Christians need the gospel every day. We need to be reminded of the message of Christ. And we need to be struck afresh by the reality that we are great sinners and Christ is a greater Savior. When Romans 14 calls us not to put a stumbling block before one another, the point is this. Don't put any needless obstacles before your brother or sister that would keep them from faithfully following Christ. But the gospel itself, while a stumbling block to unbelievers, is never a needless obstacle. We've talked about this distinction before concerning unbelievers. If you're a diehard Republican... And you are witnessing to your unbelieving friend who happens to be a diehard Democrat. You don't wear your Donald Trump t-shirt when you go to meet with that friend. You don't want to put a needless obstacle before your friend that will make it harder for them to hear what you are saying about Jesus. If they're going to stumble, let it be because you gave them the gospel and they heard it and they just wouldn't believe. Don't prevent them from giving the gospel a true and honest listen because of some other obstacle that you put in their way. Well, Romans 14 is teaching us that that same principle applies within the church, with Christians in the church of God. We ought not to do anything before a brother or sister that's going to make it harder for them to hear what Christ is teaching them. To believe what Christ is saying and to obey Christ. We want to be a help to each other's discipleship. Just as you don't want to hinder anybody in evangelism, let's not hinder each other in discipleship. We wouldn't put a needless obstacle in front of anybody as, the, as we're trying to bring them to Christ. So let's not put needless obstacles in front of each other as we seek together to follow Christ. So let's look again at what Paul is teaching here. Um, let's start reading in verse 13. Romans 14, verse 13. 
Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not. For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we've already seen two points that Paul is making here about stumbling blocks. Uh, We saw last time that we were in this passage that what a person thinks really matters. Even if something isn't sinful at all in and of itself... If I think it's a sin and I choose to do it anyway, I've sinned. So what a person thinks really matters. Second, we've seen from this passage that it is not loving to grieve your brother or sister. If your brother or sister thinks that something is a sin and they love you and they care about your soul, doing that very act right in front of them is unloving and cruel. To eat that meat at that fellowship meal sitting right beside your brother who is convinced that what you're doing is sinful is to needlessly cause them anguish. That person cares about you. He thinks, at least in his mind, that he's watching you sin against God. Don't don't do that to him. It's not loving. But now we pick up a third point from this passage, and it's this. Christians can stumble to their destruction. Christians can stumble to their destruction. Now let's see it, and then we'll try and make sense of it. So look at verse 15. Verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That hits you. Paul says that you can cause a brother or sister in this church to stumble and that the result would be their destruction. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
That raises questions, doesn't it? Can someone for whom Christ died be destroyed? Can someone whom Christ purchased at the cross, he paid for their sins, he absorbed God's wrath in their place, can they still be utterly and eternally destroyed in hell? What is Paul saying here? And just to see how important this is, notice Paul's repetition. He doesn't just speak this way in verse 15. In verse 20, speaking of Christ's church and the building of his kingdom, the people who belong to that kingdom, look at what Paul says. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. He's talking about Christians. So how do we understand this? Well, first, let's explain this reality of stumbling to the point of destruction. Uh, Paul is using eating as his example, so we're going to run with that example. The idea is that you know very well that eating meat is perfectly permissible in the Christian life. So you're convinced it's clean, I can eat meat. Your brother or sister is absolutely convinced that it's wrong. And your brother or sister has told you that they're absolutely convinced that eating meat is wrong. And yet you continue to sit right beside them and eat your hamburger. Or maybe in first century Roman context, you're you're eating your lamb chops. And maybe you're even, even offering some of your lamb chops to this fellow Christian. You know he thinks it's a sin. But, oh, it's so good. You really ought to try it. You're tempting him to sin presumptuously. You're tempting your brother to sin against his own conscience. His conscience is saying, don't do it. It's wrong. But under your pressure... He sins against his conscience. He says, I I know I'm convinced this is sin. I know this is rebellion against God, but I, peer pressure, I'm going to do it anyway. Do you know how dangerous it is to sin against your own conscience? Do you know how dangerous it is to sin presumptuously, saying, I am convinced this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. That's how hearts get hardened. That's how consciences get seared. This is how people who were once tender-hearted towards God and passionate about Jesus end up hard-hearted, worldly unbelievers. If you love your brother or sister, don't ever tempt them to sin against their conscience, even if what they believe is wrong. Matthew Henry says, The beginning of sin is as the letting forth of water. We are not sure that it will stop anywhere on this side of their eternal destruction. Now, can a Christian, someone for whom Christ died, truly be ultimately destroyed? Our Arminian friends would say, yes. Jacob Arminius, Dutch theologian, he taught that Jesus died for the sins of all people. 
But some of those people will have to pay for their sins again in hell because they do not believe. Arminius taught that a person can choose to believe on Jesus and then come to a point in their life where they apostatize. That is, they they fall away. They're not Christians anymore. They once were saved. Now they're not saved. This has been the historic teaching of Methodists. This has been the historic teaching of the free will Baptists. This has been the historic teaching of Pentecostalism. You can be saved today and your soul can be destroyed tomorrow. True, born again, justified Christians can lose their salvation. Uh, One commentator says it this way. The work of redemption that Christ has wrought for that person is canceled. It's canceled. This is the the time of year for TV show cancellations. You find out what TV shows are all canceled. No more. Have you ever considered, can your salvation be canceled? That's what this Arminian theologian says, right? The work of redemption that Christ wrought for that person, it's canceled. And that person is lost again. According to this view, you can cause your brother or your sister in this church to stumble to such an extent that their salvation is lost and the Holy Spirit's work in that person is canceled. That person's forgiveness of sins is taken away. That person's promise of heaven is taken away. Frankly, I find that view terrifying. I find it terrifying that it is possible that I could wake up tomorrow and find that though I was savingly loved by God and on my way to heaven yesterday, today, that's all gone. and I am headed for destruction. And in some ways, I find it even more terrifying that I could have that kind of power over your soul and your destiny. And you could have that kind of power over my soul and my destiny. That you could destroy my soul and I could destroy your soul. So let me give you three reasons why I'm convinced that that's not why, what Paul is saying. This is important because this is one of the passages that those who hold to that view turn to over and over again as a proof text. I mean, it sure seems to be what Paul was saying right on the surface on it. Does it not? Right? Do not destroy the work of God. Um, Three reasons why I don't think Paul is talking here about losing your salvation. Number one, the scripture as a whole is clear that all those who are truly born again and saved by God-given faith are eternally and securely saved And God's work in them can never be canceled. So first of all, before we get to Romans 14, you just have to keep in mind the rest of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible has something to say about how salvation works. One of the things it teaches, I think very clearly, is that if somebody is truly born again by the power of the Holy Spirit 
and believes on Jesus Christ with a God-given faith, that person's salvation is eternally secure. I'm going to give you just a small sampling of the many texts that prove that God preserves his people. Um, You don't have to, but I encourage you to maybe turn along to these passages as I read them so you can see them with your own eyes. Don't take Justin's word for it. Let the Bible convince you afresh. Uh, Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. Actually, probably should be Jeremiah 31, sorry. In verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. In the new covenant promises of Jeremiah, God says he's going to save a people. He says, I'm going to save a people and they will be my people and I will be their God. And he says, here's what's going to mark my new covenant people. I'm going to give them one heart and one way so that they will fear me forever. This fear of God, this high reverence for God that keeps people listening to him, following him, doing his will. He says, I'm going to put it in them forever. If if someone falls away from Christ, it's because they stopped fearing God. God says his new covenant people will fear him forever. He says it's an everlasting covenant. He says he will not turn away from doing them good. There's no cancellation. He says that by putting his fear in their hearts, they will not turn away from him. They will not turn away from him. They will be his forever and ever. This is what makes the new covenant people, the spiritual people of God, different from the physical, visible, old covenant people of ancient Israel. People in ancient Israel, some of them were real believers, some of them weren't. Some of them believed for a while and some of them didn't. Okay? They kept the covenant or they didn't keep the covenant. But the new covenant people, from every generation, even Old Testament people who are in the new covenant, We're born again by the Spirit of God and given a new heart where they will not turn from God. When we celebrate the new covenant every time we take the Lord's Supper, when we take the cup and we say, this is the new covenant in my blood, we are celebrating a covenant in which God says, you are mine and you are mine forever. John 6, 37 through 40. If you want to turn there, I think it's very clear. John 6, 37 through 40, these verses prove eternal security, and they prove that it doesn't rest on you or me, but on Christ. For a true, chosen, born-again believer to be lost would be for Christ to fail. And Christ does not fail. John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's there's no possibility of failure here. Christ does not say that he, I may raise the believer up to glory on the last day. No, he says, I will raise him up. I will lose nothing of what my God, my Father, has entrusted to me. We have Christ's guarantee on this matter. He's a good shepherd. He doesn't lose any of his sheep. Not one gets eaten by a lion. Not one. John 10, beginning in verse 27. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to them, given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Dear friends, Jesus says right here explicitly, his sheep will never perish. What do you say to that? How how does the Methodist or the Pentecostal argue against this? Because the picture is of a shepherd with sheep. And he takes such good care of the sheep that when they begin to wander, he uses his rod and he uses his staff and he brings them back to himself. He's such a good shepherd that, that wolves in sheep's clothing do not fool him. The hungry prowling lion looking for a sheep to devour does not scare him. Every scheme to snatch one of his sheep will fail. Every foolish sheep that tries to stray away, as we're all prone to do. Jesus' stern but loving discipline brings that sheep right back into the fold. Jesus will lose none of them. Philippians 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this. Do you hear any doubt? In Paul's voice, any uncertainty. You know, I, I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God does nothing halfway. God does not begin sanctifying a person only to leave that person half sanctified and then cancel the work. You ever been watching a TV show and they're building up a story and about halfway through suddenly the show got canceled and you never know what happens? That frustrating. Oh. God never starts his work of making a Christian like Jesus and then cancels halfway. He does not give us the spirit and begin by the spirit this work of making us like Jesus and then suddenly take the spirit away like a, like a half-finished sculpture. It's not who God is. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18 is a wonderful verse. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. Dear Christian, what Paul says with such joy and with such confidence here, you can say about yourself. I encourage you to memorize this verse, to repeat it to yourself often. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
The Lord will do this. And he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He will rescue me. He will bring me safely there. To him be all the glory. Look, if our salvation depended on us, of course we could lose it. If my salvation depended somehow on my strength or my abilities or my good works, yeah, I'd be lost right now. But our salvation depends on Christ. He never fails. Just one more, Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, verse 25. I said earlier that a true Christian being lost and falling utterly away would be a failure for Christ. It is Christ who saves, which means a saved person. If a saved person is lost, it means that's Christ who lost him. It's Christ who lost that person. But Christ works with unbreakable nets. When he fishes for men, so to speak, he, 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 the fish come into the nets. And once the nets get a hold of the fish, Jesus doesn't lose any of the fish. Hebrews 7 verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When Jesus saves, he saves to the uttermost. Our salvation hinges on the intercession of Christ for us. Christ is our mediator standing between us and God. He is our substitute before God. And it's because he's there that we are saved It is him pleading the merits of his blood that brings us perpetual and eternal peace with God. If Jesus stepped aside from his office, if Jesus stopped being an intercessor, we would lose our salvation. But this verse says Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And amazing. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Our salvation is as secure as Jesus' life. The only way for our salvation to cease would be for Jesus to die. And he will never die again. So, I've tried to establish the first point, And there are many more texts we could have looked at. I just didn't want to weary you. Okay? But there's so many texts we could have looked at that show... Once you're saved, you are truly, securely, and eternally saved. Second point here. Paul himself has taught that believers are eternally and securely saved in Romans before we get to Romans 14. Do you see why that's important? It would be awfully strange for Paul in the same letter written to the same church to contradict himself. It would be really strange for him to say, once you're saved, you're saved forever. Oh, but you can cause your brother to lose their salvation. That would be strange. We could see this several places in Romans, but the most famous and the one that's most precious, I think, is the great golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. comes right after 8, 28. God works all for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, you have this unbreakable chain. Forged in the furnace of God's will, accomplishing the purposes of God's grace. Those whom he foreknew, he set his love upon them in eternity past. He also predestined, and what's the destiny to which he predestined them for? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in eternity past, 
God set his love on a people and determined, I'm going to make them like Jesus. We talk about predestination. Predestination does not say God determined beforehand to bring you to heaven. Stop. Heaven's not even the whole goal. The main goal is holiness. What God predestined you to is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the mission. That's the purpose. All right? So now how does God bring that up about? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you haven't been with us on Wednesday nights, this is what we've been following over the last several weeks in, in our study of the confession of faith, what each of these words mean, what it looks like when this happens in a Christian's life. But the point is this. Every person who's justified is glorified. There's, there's no wiggle room here. We have the pronoun, those. Who are the those? They are the people God justified. Those whom he justified. He also glorified. Made perfect. Brought to heaven. Grammar matters. <laughs> know your grammar. If you know your grammar and you look at these sentences, you see these words form an unbreakable chain. There's just no room in the grammar for somebody to be justified and not eventually glorified. And then, of course, later in the same chapter, Paul tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to Christians. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Saving love. Your reckless act of tempting me to sin, your reckless act of trying to get me to violate my conscience cannot separate me from the love of God in Christ. My selfish actions that lead you to stumble cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, dear believer. Whatever Romans 14 verse 15 means, it simply cannot mean that true elect saved sinners get separated from God's saving love and go to hell. Romans 8 becomes mush if Romans 14 means that. And frankly, that would mean the Bible is contradictory and untrustworthy And what are we doing here? Paul is not a fool. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Third point here. There are other ways to understand this verse. Romans 14, verse 15. There are ways to understand this that do not require us to deny eternal security. So one view represented by the great commentator John Gill, is that Paul, when he uses the word destroy, is not speaking of eternal destruction, but of destruction in this life only. In other words, by causing you to sin, by causing you to stumble, I can destroy you to the point, not that you lose your salvation, but to the point that you are no longer useful to Christ. You're no longer salty salt. And your light is so dim that it gives no light to anyone. Some who follow Gill's position point out that Jesus used the same word that Paul uses here when he spoke of the wineskin that burst and was no longer useful for holding wine. 
So also, perhaps Paul is speaking here of a similar kind of destruction. It's the kind of moral meltdown in this life that makes a Christian no longer a reliable witness to others. So that's one view. Maybe it's, maybe it's we can cause each other to sin to the point that our witness is destroyed. Second view, this is mentioned by men like Matthew Henry, is that Paul is speaking here of people who appear to be brothers and sisters in Christ and are reckoned as brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're not really brothers and sisters in Christ. That when it talks about those for whom Christ died, it does not mean those for whom Christ actually paid the price for their sins at the cross. It only means that Christ died for them generally in the sense that he died for everyone. Christ died for everyone in the sense that his death is capable of atoning for the sins of everyone in the whole world. But he did not actually ransom everyone. He did not actually pay the price for everyone because otherwise God would be unjust to, pay, to punish Christ for those sins and then to still punish the unbeliever for those same sins. So maybe, according to Matthew Henry, the person who stumbles to his destruction is someone for whom Christ died in a general way, but was never a true believer, never a blood-bought believer, and through his sin he proves to be that he was never truly a Christian. Uh, John puts it this way in 1 John 2, describing a group of people who had been a part of the church and then left the church. John says, they went out from us But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So maybe that's the explanation. Maybe it's that these people were not believers at all. And finally, a third possible view. This is held by men like Charles Hodge is that Paul is doing in this verse what we see throughout the New Testament. He is reminding us that if a Christian stumbles to the point of falling away, that Christian will be destroyed. But it won't actually happen. It never will happen. God won't let it happen, but he gives the warning anyway. God uses warning passages like this To stir up our faith and obedience, which is what keeps the warnings from coming to happen. The Bible regularly warns Christians about the dangers of apostasy. And it's those very warnings that God uses to keep Christians from apostatizing. That is, the Bible regularly warns Christians, if you don't believe, if you don't persevere in faith, if you don't endure in faith, you will be destroyed. And it's those very same warning passages that God uses to make sure that you never lose your faith and that everyone is kept to the end. So maybe that's what's going on here in this verse. The warning is real. The warning is legitimate. It ought to move you to not hurt your brother or sister. But no true believer will ever be utterly destroyed. So which of those three views is right? And the answer is, I don't know. I really don't know which one is is right. I maybe lean towards the last. uh, But I think Paul might mean one of these or all of these. 
At the end of the day, I think the heart of what Paul was saying is clear. Christ loved sinners so much that he was willing to die for them. Are you unwilling to give up your steak dinner for them? Christ loved the people in this room so much that he bore the cross for them. Will you be willing to give up minor things? Even things that you believe are permissible out of love for your brother or sister. Let the same love of Christ that drove him to the cross be the same love in you that causes you to treat your brother and sister with care. To protect their consciences. To not be an obstacle to their holiness. Let us treat one another with love and not grieve one another and not tempt one another and not put a stumbling block before one another. Whereas Paul puts it, let us not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The problem with preaching verse by verse is sometimes you get hard verses. So that was my best attempt to preach a hard verse. I hope if nothing else we hear the heart of it. Let us love one another and be a help to each other's holiness, not a hindrance to each other's holiness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.